Good evening. I hope you've had a wonderful day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. My name is Big Voice Jay, and this is a show where we get you ready for a great night's sleep with some old familiar stories that you haven't heard in a while. Links to every story can be found in the show notes at our website, bedtimewithbvj.com. Tonight's story, A Comedy in Rubber by O. Henry. One may hope, in spite of the metaphorists, to avoid the breath of the deadly upas tree. One may, by great good fortune, succeed in blacking the eye of the basilisk. One might even dodge the attentions of Cerberus and Argus. But no man, alive or dead, can escape the gaze of the rubberer. New York is the Kauchuk City. There are many, of course, who go their ways, making money, without turning to the right or to the left. But there is a tribe abroad wonderfully composed, like the Martians, solely of eyes and means of locomotion. These devotees of curiosity swarm like flies, in a moment in a struggling, breathless circle about the scene of an unusual occurrence. If a workman opens a manhole, if a streetcar runs over a man from North Terrytown, if a little boy drops an egg on his way home from the grocery, if a casual house or two drops into the subway, if a lady loses a nickel through a hole in the aisle thread, if the police drag a telephone and a racing chart forth from an Ibsen Society reading room, if Senator Depew or Mr. Chuck Connors walks out to take the air, if any of these incidents or accidents takes place, you will see the mad, irresistible rush of the rubber tribe to the spot. The importance of the event does not count. They gaze with equal interest and absorption at a chorus girl or at a man painting a Liverpool sign. They will form as deep a cordon around a man with a club foot as they will around a bulked automobile. They have the fewer rubber endar. They are optical gluttons, feasting and fattening on the misfortunes of their fellow beings. They gloat and pour and glare and squint and stare with their fishy eyes like goggle-eyed perch at the book baited with calamity. It would seem that Cupid would find these ocular vampires too cold game for his calorific shafts. But have we not yet to discover an immune even among the protozoa? Yes, beautiful romance descended upon two of this tribe, and love came into their hearts as they crowded about the prostrate form of a man who had been run over by a brewery wagon. William Pry was the first on the spot. He was an expert at such gatherings. With an expression of intense happiness on his features, he stood over the victim of the accident listening to his groans as if to the sweetest music. When the crowd of spectators had swelled to a closely packed circle, William saw a violent commotion in the crowd opposite him. Men were hurled aside like ninepins by the impact of some moving body that clove them like the rush of a tornado. With elbows, umbrella, hat pin, tongue, and fingernails doing their duty, Violet Seymour forced her way through the mob of onlookers to the first row. Strong men who had even been able to secure a seat on the 5.30 Harlem Express staggered back like children as she bucked center. Two large lady spectators who had seen the Duke of Roxburgh married and had often blocked traffic on 23rd Street fell back into the second row with ripped shirt waists when Violet had finished with them. 
William Pry loved her at first sight. The ambulance removed the unconscious agent of Cupid. William and Violet remained after the crowd had dispersed. They were true rubbers. People who leave the scene of an accident with the ambulance have not genuine kachuk in the cosmogony of their necks. The delicate, fine flavor of the affair is to be bad only in the aftertaste, in gloating over the spot, in gazing fixedly at the houses opposite, in hovering there in a dream more exquisite than the opium eater's ecstasy. William Pry and Violet Seymour were connoisseurs and casualties. They knew how to extract full enjoyment from every incident. Presently, they looked at each other. Violet had a brown birthmark on her neck as large as a silver half-dollar. William fixed his eyes upon it. William Pry had inordinately bowed legs. Violet allowed her gaze to linger unswervingly upon them. Face to face they stood thus for moments, each staring at the other. Etiquette would not allow them to speak, but in the Kachuk city, it is permitted to gaze without stint at the trees in the parks and at the physical blemishes of a fellow creature. At length, with a sigh, they parted. But Cupid had been the driver of the brewery wagon, and the wheel that broke a leg united two fond hearts. The next meeting of the hero and heroine was in front of a board fence near Broadway. The day had been a disappointing one. There had been no fights on the street. Children had kept from under the wheels of the streetcars. The disabled and fat men in negligee shirts were scarce. Nobody seemed to be inclined to slip on banana peels or fall down with heart disease. Even the sport from Kokomo, Indiana, who claims to be a cousin of ex-Mayor Lowe and scatters nickels from a cab window, had not put in his appearance. There was nothing to stare at, and William Pry had premonitions of ennui. But he saw a large crowd scrambling and pushing excitedly in front of a billboard. Sprinting for it, he knocked down an old woman and a child carrying a bottle of milk and fought his way like a demon into the mass of spectators. Already in the inner line stood Violet Seymour, with one sleeve and two gold fillings gone, a corset steel puncture, and a sprained wrist. But happy. She was looking at what there was to see. A man was painting upon the fence. Eat bricklets. They fill your face. Violet blushed when she saw William Pry. William jabbed a lady in a black silk raglan in the ribs, kicked a boy in the shin, bit an old gentleman on the left ear, and managed to crowd nearer to Violet. They stood for an hour looking at the man paint the letters. Then William's love could be repressed no longer. He touched her on the arm. Come with me, he said. I know where there's a boot black without an Adam's apple. She looked at him shyly yet with unmistakable love transfiguring her countenance. "'And you have saved it for me?' she asked, trembling with the first dim ecstasy of a woman beloved. Together they hurried to the boot-black stand. An hour they spent there gazing at the malformed youth. A window cleaner fell from the fifth story to the sidewalk beside them. As the ambulance came clanging up, William pressed her hand joyously. Four ribs, at least, and a compound fracture!' He whispered swiftly. You are not sorry that you met me, are you, dearest? Me, said Violet, returning the pressure. Sure not. 
I could stand all day rubbering with you. The climax of the romance occurred a few days later. Perhaps the reader will remember the intense excitement into which the city was thrown when Eliza Jane, a black woman, was served with a subpoena. The rubber tribe encamped on the spot. With his own hands, William Pry placed a board upon two beer kegs in the street opposite Eliza Jane's residence. He and Violet sat there for three days and nights. Then it occurred to a detective to open the door and serve the subpoena. He went for a kinetoscope and did so. Two souls with such congenial tastes could not long remain apart. As a policeman drove them away with his nightstick that evening, they plighted their truth. The seeds of love had been well sown and had grown up hardy and rigorous into a, let us call it, a rubber plant. The wedding of William Pry and Violet Seymour was set for June 10th. The big church in the middle of the block was banked high with flowers. A populous tribe of rubberers the world over is rampant over weddings. They are the pessimists of the pews. They are the guyers of the groom and the banterers of the bride. They come to laugh at your marriage, and should you escape from Hyman's Tower on the back of death's pale steed, they will come to the funeral and sit in the same pew and cry over your luck. Rubber will stretch. The church was lighted. A grain carpet lay over the asphalt to the edge of the sidewalk. Bridesmaids were patting one another's sashes awry and speaking of the bride's freckles. Coachmen tied white ribbons on their whips and bewailed the space of time between drinks. The minister was musing over his possible fee, essaying conjecture whether it would suffice to purchase a new broadcloth suit for himself and a photograph of Laura Jane Libby for his wife. Yes, Cupid was in the air. And outside the church, all my brothers surged and haved the rank and file of the tribe of rubberers. In two bodies they were, with the grain carpet and cops with clubs between. They crowded like cattle. They fought. They pressed and surged and swayed and trampled one another to see a bit of a girl in white veil acquire license to go through a man's pockets while he sleeps. But the hour for the wedding came and went, and the bride and bridegroom came not. And impatience gave way to alarm, and alarm brought about search, and they were not found. And then two big policemen took a band and dragged out of the furious mob of onlookers a crushed and trampled thing with a wedding ring in its vest pocket, and a shredded and hysterical woman beating her way to the carpet's edge, ragged, bruised, and obstreperous. William Pry and Violet Seymour, creatures of habit, had joined in the seething game of the spectators. Unable to resist the overwhelming desire to gaze upon themselves entering, as bride and bridegroom, the rose-decked church. Rubber will out. I think you know some folks like that. Some folks who are always just looking around, seeing what everybody else is doing. It even led to their demise. And if we're not careful, just poking around will lead to our demise as well. So get off of those social sites. You don't need them. Don't you have enough going on in your own life as it is? Just think about it while we read our next story.
Our final story, The Cactus by O. Henry. The garments of his soul must have appeared sorry and threadbare. Vanity and conceit, these were the joints in his arm. And now, free from either, she had always been. But why? The most notable thing about time is that it is so purely relative. A large amount of reminiscence is, by common consent, conceded to the drowning man, and it is not past belief that one may review an entire courtship while removing one's gloves. That is what Trysdale was doing, standing by a table in his bachelor apartments. On the table stood a singular-looking green plant in a red earthen jar. The plant was one of the species of cacti, and was provided with long, tentacular leaves that perpetually swayed with the slightest breeze with a peculiar beckoning motion. Trysdale's friend, the brother of the bride, stood at a sideboard complaining of being allowed to drink alone. Both men were in evening dress. White favors like stars upon their coats shone through the gloom of the apartment. As he slowly unbuttoned his gloves, there passed through Trysdale's mind a swift, scarifying retrospect of the last few hours. It seemed that in his nostrils was still the scent of the flowers that had been banked in odorous masses about the church, and in his ears the low-pitched hum of a thousand well-bred voices, the rustle of crisp garments, and most insistently recurring, the drawling words of the minister, irrevocably binding her to another. From this last hopeless point of view he still strove, as if it had become a habit of his mind, to reach some conjecture as to why and how he had lost her. Shaken rudely by this uncompromising fact, he had suddenly found himself confronted by a thing he had never before faced, his own innermost, unmitigated, and unbedecked self. He saw all the garbs of pretense and egoism that he had worn now turned to rags of folly. He shuddered at the thought that to others, before now, the garments of his soul must have appeared sorry and threadbare. Vanity and conceit? These were the joints in his armor, and how free from either she had always been. But why? As she slowly moved up the aisle towards the altar, he had felt an unworthy, sullen exultation that had served to support him. He had told himself that her paleness was from thoughts of another than the man to whom she was about to give herself. But even that poor consolation had been wrenched from him. For when he saw that swift, limpid, upward look that she gave the man when he took her hand, he knew himself to be forgotten. Once that same look had been raised to him, and he had gauged its meaning. Indeed, his conceit had crumbled. Its last prop was gone. Why had it ended thus? There had been no quarrel between them, nothing. For the thousandth time, he remarshaled in his mind the events of those last few days before the tide had so suddenly turned. She had always insisted upon placing him upon a pedestal, and he had accepted her homage with royal grandeur. It had been a very sweet incense that she had burned before him, so modest, he told himself, so childlike and worshipful, and, he would once have sworn, so sincere. She had invested him with an almost supernatural number of high attributes and excellencies, 
and talons, and he had absorbed the oblation as a desert drinks the rain that can coax from it no promise of blossom or fruit. As Trysdale grimly wrenched apart the seam of his last glove, the crowning instance of his fatuous and tardily mourned egoism came vividly back to him. The scene was the night when he had asked her to come up on his pedestal with him and share his greatness. He could not now, for the pain of it, allow his mind to dwell upon the memory of her convincing beauty that night. The careless wave of her hair, the tenderness and virginal charm of her looks and words. But they had been enough, and they had brought him to speak. During their conversation, she had said, And Captain Carruthers tells me that you speak the Spanish language like a native. Why have you hidden this accomplishment from me? Is there anything you do not know? Now, Carruthers was an idiot. No doubt he, Tridesdale, had been guilty, he sometimes did such things, of airing at the club some old, canting Castilian proverb dug from the hotchpotch at the back of dictionaries. Carruthers, who was one of his incontinent admirers, was the very man to have magnified this exhibition of doubtful erudition. But alas, the incense of her admiration had been so sweet and flattering. He allowed the imputation to pass without denial. Without protest, he allowed her to twine about his brow the spurious bay of Spanish scholarship. He let it grace his conquering head, and among its soft convolutions, he did not feel the prick of a thorn that was to pierce him later. How glad... How shy, how tremulous she was. How she fluttered like a snared bird when he laid his mightiness at her feet. He could have sworn, and he could swear now, that unmistakable consent was in her eyes. But coyly, she would give him no direct answer. I will send you my answer tomorrow, she said. And he, the indulgent, confident victor, smilingly granted the delay. The next day he waited, impatient, in his rooms for the word. At noon her groom came to the door and left the strange cactus in the red earthen jar. There was no note, no message, merely a tag upon the plant bearing a barbarous foreign or botanical name. He waited until night, but her answer did not come. His large pride and hurt vanity kept him from seeking her. Two evenings later they met at a dinner. Their greetings were conventional, but she looked at him, breathless, wondering, eager. He was courteous, adamant, waiting her explanation. With womanly swiftness, she took her cue from this manner and turned to snow and ice. Where was his fault? Who had been to blame? Humbled now, he sought the answer amid the ruins of his self-conceit. If, the voice of the other man in the room, querulously intruding upon his thoughts, aroused him. I say, Trysdale, what the deuce is the matter with you? You look unhappy as if you yourself had been married, instead of having acted merely as an accomplice. Look at me, another accessory. Come two thousand miles on a garlicky cockroachy banana steamer all the way from South America to connive at the sacrifice. Please to observe... How lightly my guilt rests upon my shoulders. Only little sister I had, too, and now she's gone. Come now, take something to ease your conscience. I don't drink just thanks, said Trysdale. Your brandy, resumed the other. 
Coming over and joining him is abominable. Run down to see me sometime in Ponta Redonda and try some of our stuff that old Garcia smuggles in. It's worth the trip. Hello, here's an old acquaintance. Wherever did you rake up this cactus, Trysdale? A present, said Trysdale, from a friend. Know the species? Very well. It's a tropical concern. See hundreds of them around Punta every day. Here's the name on this tag tied to it. Know any Spanish, Trysdale? No, said Trysdale, with a bitter wrath of a smile. Is it Spanish? Yes. The natives imagine the leaves are reaching out and beckoning to you. They call it by this name, Ventum Arm. Name means in English, come and take me. This is why communication is so very important in any relationship. Next thing you know, you're staring at a cactus, and you don't know what happened. But you know, it is your fault. And at that point, you should get some flowers to counteract the cactus she just sent you. Go to 1-800-Flowers.com and enter BVJ in the promo code. And it will do absolutely nothing, because this is not a sponsored read. I would like to remind you that you can leave us a review on iTunes. It helps others find the show. And that's what we want. That and a good night's sleep. Remember, you can send me stories to read. Email me, bigvoicej at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>